Pushkin. Hey, it's Noah. I want to tell you about a podcast from New York Magazine. It's called Pivot, and it's hosted by New York Magazine editor-at-large Kara Swisher and NYU business professor Scott Galloway. Every Tuesday and Friday, Kara and Scott break down the major news stories of the week and take a sharp look at how they're changing the way we communicate, vote, shop, and live. You can expect razor-sharp insights, bold predictions, and a declaration of the week's big winners and losers. Kara and Scott banter and bicker at the speed of your Twitter feed, and the show is as funny as it is informative. So subscribe to Pivot with Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway for free in your favorite podcast app to get new episodes automatically from New York Magazine and the Vox Media Podcast Network. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. Are you one of the 49.3 million Americans who hit the road this Thanksgiving? Are you, perhaps, listening to this in a car right now? If either of these things is true, this is definitely the episode for you. We're here to talk about how cars have shaped the history of policing in America and how the space of the car has been fundamental to the definition of your rights under the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution, specifically your right to privacy. To discuss this, we're talking to Sarah Seo. She's a professor at the University of Iowa's College of Law, and she's the author of Policing the Open Road, How Cars Transformed American Freedom. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me. In reading your book, I was really struck, the first thing that struck me, and maybe this should have been obvious to me before, but it wasn't, is that probably cars are the single most significant technological event of the last hundred years in American life. I mean, we talk a lot about the internet. We imagine that the transformation of social media is so enormous. None of it seems to hold a candle to the car as a transformative technology. Do you buy that? I mean, do you think of the car as really the be-all and the end-all of technological change, making the computer look kind of secondary? Well, in the 20th century, we call that the automobile age, like the Bronze Age, right? And so we've defined that century as defined by the car and how it transformed our life, our culture, um, the way our cities look, the way our countryside looks. So my answer would be yes, it completely transformed almost every aspect of uh, our life. I want to talk about the idea of privacy and how it has evolved over the course of our century or the last century, really, in relationship to cars. And you say some really fascinating things about this, starting with the idea that the idea of privacy as a fundamental right was really just getting started in the United States around the same time as the rise of the automobile, probably initially almost by coincidence. But then once those two ideas met up, things got tricky because according to the pre-car conception, if I was inside my home, I had a right to privacy. And if I was outside on the street, I didn't have a right to privacy. And cars raise the question of, are you at home or are you on the street? So say something, if you will, about how courts and the society tried to get a grip on that in-between nature of being in your car. So one of the main themes of my book is that cars are just a completely new space. And both judges and ordinary Americans were trying to figure out what this new space exactly was. So 
the way that ordinary Americans experienced their cars was kind of like an extension of their homes. They saw the car as a parlor or the boudoir, right? Uh, young people uh, moved from the parlor to the car to date and to get to know each other. Aren't those euphemisms? I mean, wasn't there also just in, in prior generations to ours, wasn't there just a lot of sex in cars at a time when people lived with their parents and they didn't have other places to go? I mean, the whole notion of parking wasn't, I mean, it's nice to say that people are getting to know each other, but that's not all they were doing. <laughs> right. So actually on that, there's uh, one of the first hit songs about cars was um, composed in 1905, where uh, the lyrics uh, uh, asks Lucille to come away with me in my merry Oldsmobile. Uh, you can go as far as you like with me in my merry Oldsmobile. You can go as far as you like with me in my merry Oldsmobile. So definitely there was a lot of sexual innuendos in that 1905 song. Dating couples could uh, escape the prying eyes of their parents in their homes in the parlors and go off for a Sunday drive and do whatever they like as far as they want to go. Um, and so that there's a notion of privacy, uh, sexual privacy, the privacy of the family going on Sunday drives together, bringing the family mm. together. Uh, advertisements actually marketed the car as an extension of the home, as uh, the domestic hearth where the family got together. Um, but the way that uh, government officials, judges um, and leaders thought of the car was a bit more complex or complicated if you go back to the moment when cars first rolled off uh, assembly lines, the assembly line and standardization really allowed a lot of cars to be produced and to be able to be sold for a very uh, affordable price. So this is the story of Ford and the Model T, and suddenly there really are cars everywhere. Exactly. Um, and so this is what was so unprecedented about the mass production of cars is that so many individuals were able to own their own form of transportation. They, could no, they no longer had to rely on public transportation or walk. And so... What happened was that all of a sudden there were hundreds and thousands of cars on streets that were really intended for a few carriages or the trolley um, and mostly pedestrians. And so it created mass chaos on public streets. And when there's public danger to all, then that uh, allows the government to exercise their powers to uh, legislate for the public safety and welfare. And so the way that uh, lawyers and government officials thought about cars was they pose a threat to public safety. And so we need to regulate the use of motor vehicles and we need to increase um, our powers to make sure that we cut down the accident rate, that everybody drives in a coordinated fashion so that traffic can move. And so they were seeing this as something that needed to be regulated. And so when you have government regulation, that starts interfering with individual privacy. So you were saying that the advertisers said, hey, your car is an extension of your home. And certainly after dark, courting couples used their cars as a kind of extension of the home. But you also pointed out that because of traffic regulation, then that meant that cars came under the regulation of the government in a way that the inside of the home might not or might not in the same way. 
when are the first times that the courts start grappling with the question of whether when a policeman pulls you over for a traffic violation, the police officer is authorized to use force to either look inside your car or to pull you out of your car? Right away. So what happened was that the mass production of cars coincided with prohibition. So states were outlawing liquor starting from the mid-19th century through the late 19th century. And then we had uh, the national prohibition that was ratified in 1919. And so really those two things happened at the same time. And so uh, more law enforcement agencies wanted to stop and search cars for liquor. Um, And so the issue of how much power law enforcement officers had to stop and search a car because they suspected that there was liquor inside, that was contested from the very beginning. And how did the courts first begin to rule on that? Was there a trend at the beginning that then changed or was it pretty consistent from the start? It was pretty consistent from the start. Um, So I distinguish how courts treated prohibition cases from the way they treated car cases. Um, Mm -hmm. because prohibition was contested from the very beginning, right? People thought that they had a natural right to drink alcohol. Even Jesus, (laughs) even Jesus turned water into wine. Robinson Crusoe had uh, wine to drink too. It was natural. And so courts were starting to um, change their Fourth Amendment uh, jurisprudence. And Fourth Amendment governs uh, the police's search and seizure powers. And they were starting to provide more protections to individuals in prohibition cases. And then you have uh, the coincidence of mass uh, production of cars and national prohibition. And so those cases were coming together. And that's when you start having uh, the government argue, this is really not about liquor. These cases are really about uh, fighting crime because cars changed the entire calculus on crime commission and criminal law enforcement. And that's when you have courts uniformly decide that they need to increase the police's power to stop and search cars. So the outcome, in other words, is from the start that the cops have significant discretion to stop the car and see what's inside. Exactly. Now, certainly there were vocal dissents, people who thought a car is private property and the Fourth Amendment protects uh, private property from warrantless searches and seizures. And cars fit under that protection. So there were dissents, but uniformly throughout the country, and I looked at state court cases and federal court cases, uniformly, they all decided that the police needed the power to stop and search a car without warrants. And did the police have to show that they had any reasonable suspicion to do that? Or was it enough for them to say, "Um, we don't like the look of you? So that's a really interesting question because Courts have held that cops need reasonable or probable cause to believe that there was something illegal inside the car. Now, from the very beginning, commentators uh, criticized that rule because when you say that a cop needs reasonable or probable cause, that's not a standard of certainty, right? Um, And so if you allow for reasonable probable cause, you're also allowing for instances where the cop could be wrong. Um, because they don't have to be certain about it. And if a cop can be wrong, if a standard allows a cop to be wrong, then it sort of allows a cop to make things up a little bit. Um, And that's exactly what happened in Fourth Amendment jurisprudence. There's a reasonable or probable cause standard that 
allows a lot of leeway to the police to bolster their case that they had reasonable or probable cause. So fill that in a little bit, because now we're getting very close to the meat of, you know, the the archetypal scene of the cops pull somebody over, probably a young African-American male in our in our archetype. And the question arises of whether the cop has probable cause to search the car. Fill it in a little bit. What what counted historically and what counts in the law today as probable cause and how has that changed? Well, so the first thing I should say about what probable cause is, is that we don't really know. The courts have refused to put a number on what probable cause is. So if you think about knowledge or the standards of proof that the state has to have before they take action, uh, we can start from zero. They they have nothing on us to uh, 99% proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Right. And uh, the proof beyond reasonable doubt is the necessary standard to convict someone of a crime. Now, probable cause is somewhere below that. And the courts have refused to put a number on what that amount of certainty is. The best way that they've described it is it's a matter of probabilities, more likely than not. But Sarah, isn't that let me just ask you about that. I mean, when I hear probable cause, I hear more probable than not. And I hear 50% plus a smidgen. Am I hearing that the wrong way? That's one way to look at it, except that the courts have uh, refused to say that it's a smidgen more than 50%. And here's the reason why all of this matters. It's because Fourth Amendment challenges, a challenge to a police search of a car, for instance, only happens when the person is guilty, when the police found something in the car. And so when a Fourth Amendment challenge is made, a judge is looking at a guilty person who was caught red-handed. And of course, when when you're faced with that scenario, it's just much easier to say the police had probable cause because uh, obviously they found someone with uh, alcohol in their cars or now today drugs in their cars. Um, and so the, the whole calculus is uh, biased towards of finding probable cause because judges aren't looking at the cases where an innocent person has been searched or their car has been searched. Well, we sometimes are, right? I mean, we, we sometimes are. I mean, the Sandra Bland case is an example of how in certain outlying cases, we do look at an instance where somebody has been stopped. And then when something terrible happens, we say, oh, my goodness, you know, you should never have stopped this person in the first place. Or at those moments of our history where we focus on um, racial profiling or other illegitimate means of stops, then we take a deep breath and we say, well, wait a second, you know, should these stops have been allowed in the first instance? I mean, I completely agree with you that on, in an ordinary judicial situation, if the cop searches your car, there's nothing in your car, they let you go. So it doesn't come to court. So I, I get your point. I think it's a very powerful and important point. But there are moments, aren't there, where we do engage in the question of what should be sufficient cause for a stop and a search? No, I don't think we do. And, hmm, fascinating. And, and let me try to explain why I feel that way. Um, so Sandra Bland, uh, to remind listeners of that um, tragic incident, uh, she was arrested and she died in her jail cell three days later. And uh, she was pulled over for a minor traffic violation. Nobody challenged that. And this is something that I cover in my book. From the very beginning of mass production of cars, uh, cities, towns passed volumes and volumes of traffic laws governing everything from necessary traffic equipment to 
when a car can make a right turn. And a violation of any one of those traffic laws allows the police to stop that car. But I feel like there is a real debate out there in the world today about whether it's okay for police departments to use theoretically neutral rules like, you know, you made a turn without signaling, uh, which was, I think, the case, the, the claim in the Sandra Bland case. And if cops are using those, but they're applying them in a discriminatory fashion, they're applying them so that the people who get pulled over are disproportionately African-Americans, let's say, or Latino, then, you know, I, I do have the feeling that people do think in the world that many people think that there's something wrong with, with, with that, that maybe having a broken taillight shouldn't be grounds to be potentially arrested. I think many people, and I can include myself in that, agree with you, but that's not where the law is. Right. The law still assumes that if you've committed even the most minor traffic violation, you're, it's, it's legally justifiable to stop you and potentially to... But w- would it be potentially permissible to search your car under those circumstances? So let me back up. Uh, the court has said in 1996, in the case Wren versus United States, that if a cop pulls over somebody based on pretext, so the cop thinks that the driver has drugs in the car, but doesn't have probable cause, then the cop can't stop that car, right? Because probable cause is the necessary requirement. But the cop can use a minor traffic violation to pull that car over. That kind of pretextual car stop is A-OK, according to the Supreme Court. So the cop pulls over a car for a minor traffic violation. Then the next question is, can the cop start searching the car for the drugs that he or she suspects? And this is where we get to the fuzziness of the probable cause standard. It is really easy to cite facts that support probable cause. I looked at one of the best-selling police textbooks on what they call criminal patrol how to do drug busts using traffic law enforcement. And they say probable cause is actually a very capacious standard. A lot of things you can, you know, think of to meet that standard, like suspicious odors, right? I smelled marijuana. How are you going to prove that in court? It's the officer's testimony, right? And if the officer finds a marijuana butt, then yeah, it sounds right that the officer smelled it. And so it's it's really easy to uh, meet the standards for a warrantless car search because of the volumes of traffic laws that everybody violates at some point. I, I get what you're saying, but you're also describing, aren't you, a potential distortion, the possibility which always exists of police distorting the truth or or lying in some other way, right? I mean, Yes. As the as again, as the archetype, I keep on thinking of the the Jay Z song "Ninety Nine Problems." Yeah, in which he's he's replicating the structure of a pullover, and he says, "You know, do you think that because my hat's real low that you know you can search me? You can't. I know my constitutional rights. I mean, I'm paraphrasing now without anything like Jay Z's flow, but the basic idea <laughs> is that the cops don't have the constitutional right to search, and Jay Z wants you, the listener of the song, to know that. You know, I teach that song when I teach criminal procedure. And we go over verse two. Verse two is the car stop uh, that actually happened in real life to Jay-Z. So he sings a version of that in the song.
And we and I go over what he gets wrong about the Fourth Amendment. Can you share that with us? So he's right that there is racial profiling that goes on, especially at the time uh, when he um, experienced it for himself. There was a drug courier profile with traits that were associated with black men that uh, highway patrollers were um, instructed to look for when they pull over in their drug interdiction programs. And so he's right as a matter of social reality that they were profiled. As a matter of law, that's okay under the Wren case that I just mentioned. The other thing that he gets really wrong, he sings that the cop needs to go get a warrant to search his car. And that is absolutely not true. Mm-hmm. The cops do not need a warrant. If they don't they need a warrant if they, need have, prob- if they need they need if they have probable cause. Right. If they have probable right. cause, they don't yeah. need to actually go and get a warrant for that probable cause. Exactly. Right. But according to the textbook, the police textbook on criminal patrol, getting probable cause for a warrantless car search is super easy. And in fact, the textbook says the Fourth Amendment is your tool in criminal patrol. The uh, cop or the uh, highway patroller who does a good job doesn't see the Fourth Amendment as an impediment. They see the Fourth Amendment as opportunities. And that's actually one of the main arguments of your book, as I read it, that um, especially lawyers like to tell, maybe especially law professors, we like to tell heroic stories about how the law protects people. But in fact, the law that regulates search is as much a law that enables the cops to search as it is a law that that limits those searches. I think that's a, a hugely important point, but it has a kind of complex interaction with the car, doesn't it? I mean, the car has never really been a true sanctuary. It's always an in-between space that's subject to a fair amount of of police surveillance and governmental regulation. Isn't, isn't that a fair description? Exactly. Um, and that's one of the tensions that animates my book, is that in American culture, uh, we celebrate the car as a freedom machine. But when we look at the legal history, the law's treatment of cars. It's heavily regulated and heavily policed. And you bring in, um, you mentioned the conventional story that we've told about constitutional law, about the Fourth Amendment. And that was one of the questions that I had when I first started this project is that the conventional story that I've always learned as a law school student is that the court has been the protector of our individual liberties, especially the Warren Court, the Warren Court was um, considered one of the most liberal courts in um, our history. That's the Supreme Court under the under the Chief Justiceship of, of Earl Warren in the in the 1950s, 60s, and into the very early 70s. Yeah, exactly right. And the Warren Court started what we now refer to as a due process revolution. Revolution, right? Uh, a revolution to give individuals more rights under the Constitution. And this was a progressive, triumphal story that I've always learned starting in law school through grad school. But I was always confused because I was starting to also read about problems with the criminal justice system and mass incarceration that disproportionately affects uh, minorities and the poor. And I was so confused because the Warren Court's due process revolution was supposed to help those groups. But a generation after the due process revolution, those groups are the ones who are disproportionately affected in the criminal justice system. And so what happened? Um, And that was one of the questions that I had when I started this project. And I realized our conventional story, history that I've been told 
we only looked at certain landmark cases. We only looked at the cases that dealt with invasions to the home. We never looked at the cases that involved the police's power to stop and search cars. And so if we look at those cases, we see courts from state courts to district trial courts all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. They've always reliably granted the police more power, more discretionary power. So I want to ask you for a final question, Sarah, just to put on your futuristic goggles and picture the driverless cars or the self-driving cars that, you know, may not be right around the corner, but are they're on the way. And imagine writing, you know, after your book becomes a bestseller and wins all the prizes, uh, they ask you to publish an updated edition in 15 or 20 years with a new chapter on driverless cars and the law. What do you imagine the big issues are going to become for regulation in a world where I'm not actually controlling the car anymore? Well, it's going to really change Fourth Amendment practice, uh, not necessarily the law, but practice, because much of criminal law investigation, the investigation of drug laws specifically, happens with a minor traffic violation. And if autonomous driving cars are programmed never to violate the traffic laws, Which I sure hope they will be programmed for. Yep. Right. Uh, me too. Then that means that the police will need probable cause of some sort of violation other than the violation of a traffic law. Hmm. They will need probable cause that the car contains contraband or other illegal substances. So if I want to, if I want to buy drugs in Florida and drive them up the I ninety five corridor to the Northeast, what I should do right away is buy myself a Tesla. Exactly. That never violates uh, the traffic violations because the police need probable cause that you have drugs in it. And how will they know unless they saw you actually putting drugs into the car? That's really the only situation that I can think of that amounts to probable cause. Hmm. And so the whole criminal patrol that's based on a minor traffic violation, that will cease. But the privacy intrusions can come in in really unexpected places, right? And so I imagine these autonomous cars will be outfitted with GPS devices and all sorts of um, the Internet of Things, uh, right? Um, yeah, they'll have to talk to all the other cars. I mean, it won't work unless these cars exactly. talk to each other, right? Exactly. And all of that, talking to other cars, uh, interacting with a greater network that's connected through um, the internet and cloud and all of that. Um, and, you know, cars basically have, new cars today basically have computers installed in them, right, that are connected to uh, the internet. All of that is connecting to the to the greater public, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, the way that courts are dealing with questions about what is public and private that I talk about in the history of cars, they're struggling with that still today when it comes to smartphones, uh, the cloud, the internet, and all of that will be bundled with uh, autonomous driving cars too. So it's going to be um, an issue that will have a second uh, version. Uh, so there, there could be a volume too. There you go. I'm looking forward to reading it. Sarah, thank you so much for this really fascinating conversation for your really thought-provoking and, and terrific book. Thank you. Talking to Sarah really brings into focus how absolutely central the automobile has been, not just to every aspect of our lives, but to the question of our freedoms in the United States, to the question of privacy, to race, to almost all of the most fundamental issues that we struggle with when it comes to the definition of our rights. Going forward, it seems, 
the technology of cars will both be always the same and ever-changing. It's always the same in the sense that just has been the case for more than a century, our roads, our spaces are defined by cars. We spend time in cars and the police will continue to observe and regulate our actions while we're in cars. But slowly and gradually, as our cars become self-driving, the technology is going to change the way that our government and our police interact with us in cars. Our privacy may gradually return. Our violation of traffic laws will almost certainly decline. And the government will have to come up with new ways of thinking about how it regulates us. And we will have to come up with new ways of exploring our freedom. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Lydia Jean Cott with engineering by Jason Gambrell and Jason Rostkowski. Our showrunner is Sophie McKibben. Our theme music is composed by Luis Guerra. Special thanks to the Pushkin Brass, Malcolm Gladwell, Jacob Weisberg, and Mia Lobel. I'm Noah Feldman. You can follow me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. This is Deep Background. A last note today, Deep Background is taking a holiday break. We'll be back with a new season in the new year.